Welcome to the Susana Motherwork Podcast. This is Cecilia, Christine, Judy, Yvette, Michelle from the Susana Motherwork Collective. We are a collective of Chicana PhD mother scholars, artists, and activists. The Chicana Motherwork Podcast aims to create a communal space for dialogue that sheds light on how the labor of mothering can be a transformative act within academia and beyond. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Susana Motherwork is intergenerational. Chicana Motherwork means healing ourselves. Chicana Motherwork is an imaginary. Chicana Motherwork makes our labor visible. Our labor is our prayer. Our mothering is our offering. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Chicana Motherwork podcast. We're so excited to have uh, Gris Munoz here with us today. Uh, this is Ceci with Christine, and um, I'm going to introduce her to our podcast. So uh, Gris Munoz is a Frontera poet, performer, and essayist. She's the author of The Amazing Guatlique Girl, which she's going to talk with us about. And her work has been published in The Rumpus, B Bitch Media, Queen Mobs Tea House, and she's featured in the upcoming Third Woman Press inaugural anthology. She's currently commissioned to write the biography of acclaimed LA artist Fabian Devora, and she is a Chicana of Apache descent. Welcome, Gris. Hi. Um, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad it finally happened. I know we went back and forth a couple of months. I know. I know. <laughs> but, we're, but we're here. I think everything happens in the right time, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it, it has been a kind of a difficult time because while well, we're talking about motherhood here and the pandemic has been absolutely rough on mothers and you know mm -hmm. there's been a lot of essays and and things out about that and so we've all been busy but it's so good to also like step out of that role and talk go back go back to work right yeah, and you've done a lot. It's just been amazing to see um, the reception of your book and the different projects that you're involved with. And um, I know, and, and later we have some questions, but um, I'm really interested, uh, and later we'll have more time to talk about it, but, um, you know, kind of, you know, at age 40 or what some consider older, but it's not, it's not really, but for women and gender, um, mm. you know, in terms of the expectations that these societal pressures and expectations to kind of have this huge response to your book at 40 and it's just like now you know this is coming into this moment um oh my god yeah no absolutely you know um it was definitely a do or die mm. i guess that's how i felt like and i had um well i mean it's to begin with it takes me a long time to speak I think that that goes back to my childhood. I, for the most part, um, I was like taken care of physically, but I was also emotionally neglected. I kind of think that it was just because my parents were first generation. I mean, they were born in, in Mexico. And so they were working a lot and I had three big brothers. And um, so it was just kind of like, I was just always there and I had to keep myself busy and I observed. And so I just spent a, spend a lot of time observing. And a lot of times like, um, 
I won't say anything until I have enough to, to really speak. And I kept thinking that. I kept, I kept feeling a sense of, um, yeah, the t you know, the time was going. I started, I started working on Quite Liquid Girl, or, or rather, I started performing um, my poetry. And I was like, you know, the, like a Chicana poet, like, like so many. Right, so many of us, but like with this, with this um, fire in me, you know, the famous Chicana poet in your twenties, fire, and um, I called myself La Rana, and um, so I, I don't know, I just like I had issues with identity, or rather, I was really interested in creating an archetype. I was really interested in archetypes, and La Rana was uh, like an archetype, and she'd wear military jackets. And uh, you know, like the the big earrings and my hair in the buns, and I would perform. Actually, um, I performed ten years ago at the 40th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium as La Rana, and um, so I, I kind of like have had like a long trajectory. And at the same time, um, I didn't start really. I went back to school when I became a single mom, and so I became a single mom when I was around 30 and my daughter was one and um that's really when i became a single mom and i went back to school and that's really when um i realized that i still had a lot to learn i wanted to learn literature like i i had like sure we don't sure we don't need it i had spent time as a chicana poet that you know wasn't uh focused on formal writing you know I would pick up a a bullhorn and run into a coffee shop and start yelling at people basically and but I actually amassed like a good uh following as La Rana and I then I just knew I had to go back to school so that's what I started doing I became a single mom I started going back to school with the help of my parents um who did help me they would watch her for me and and um I always had this dream about Guadalupe Girl like I wanted to create something that was like a new version of the genre and the first uh piece that's actually um the first piece I wrote I think is Beer Run I wrote Beer Run in 2006. That was the first draft of it. And the reason Beer Run is so like, it's pretty tight. Um, it's because it's been, I, I've looked at it and looked at it and edited and edited it uh, for so many years, just like over and over again, you know? Um, but, so I started writing this book at 26 and it just wasn't ready. I just kept like, uh, I would look at it and then I would see mistakes. I would look at it and my writing had improved. So I'd go back in and I always had this feeling that um, because we're, because we're, I mean, especially me, like I'm from El Paso, you know, I have this like, it's, it's harder, it's harder to get your work noticed from out here and there's less opportunities for performances or, or even exposure. So I kind of have always felt that the stakes were really high. 
excuse me. And um, so, you know, there was just all these like, uh, there was just like things that kept happening. Like at some point I found a press for it and um, I had to leave them behind. And like, I don't know how to explain it, but there was just so many um, times that I got derailed just because of mental illness, just because of poverty, just because of my own self-esteem, my fears, you know, my own sense of self-worth. And um, so I, this book almost killed me. You know, it almost killed me to get out. But man, the the response, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible. It's medicine, you know, and I can't believe it. You know, I'm still in awe of it. Sometimes I'll pick it up and go, gosh, this book is beautiful. Like it's beautiful, you know, it's a, it's so, it's pretty. There's just something about it. And I like how potent the work is in it, even though the book is slim. Kind of like me, you know, like the book kind of feels like it looks like me. It feels like me, you know, and so it was definitely worth waiting for. And I and and I definitely felt strange about putting a book out that was called Girl at 39. You know, clearly I'm no no longer a girl. And uh, but at the same time, I, I kind of like that was just the energy of the book. And and honestly, like it shows really who I am. Because even now, like, you know, I write kind of essays and they sound kind of stuffy and the writing has changed. But, um, you know, that young girl, the, the girl that's in these stories, uh, that's really the essence of, you know, what brought me here anyway. So it's like I, I keep her with me. I keep that like 20 something wild ass mujer with me. And you know, I'm like taking her on this, on this ride with me now. Um, I'm like in awe and I'm so happy that I was able to jump in on this call with you and, you know, um, and I really want to like say like that's an affirmation because I'm going to hit 40, like, you know, in a few years and I think I'm one of, I'm the second oldest in the collective, right? So see, like <laughs> we make fun of each other yeah. because I'm the second oldest non-traditional student, went to community college before I went same. to, you know, the, right? It was a community, yeah, and same. I think that's, yeah, and so I appreciate, there's a lot of work that some of us are doing on our own outside of Chicana Mother Work. And one of that, one of the aspects of that is, acknowledging and embracing our different identities at our different like life stages and for you to say you're your wild 20 something year old girl I'm like yo thank you for affirming that because I haven't gotten to that point yet I haven't met my 20 something year old yet I, I know who she was right and I think I put her away because of so much pain so just to yeah. hear you say that it affirms yeah a no, really no, no. Part of our identity. I agree know? with you. Uh, you know, I wanted, I wanted to put her away too. I mean, come on now. I mean, these stories, you know, because I went on a healing journey. Um, I'm a ceremony woman, you know. Um, I finished my four years of danza Sochimesli, what they call danza de la luna in Tenochtitlan in the year 2012. 
so when I started working, um, when after I had my daughter, you know, I discovered, or before I had my daughter, but basically when I started writing was the same time that I started my relationship with ceremony. And so I, I've, I healed that girl, you know, that girl, I've done a lot of work to heal that girl. And it is easy to put her away and try to write some sophisticated shit, which I could do and I'm doing, you know, but man, you know, the, the, the response that I'm getting, like, even though uh, women from all ages, uh, of all ages, excuse me, um, tell me they love the book. The response that I'm getting is a lot of the younger mujeres. And, um, and, and actually, I left ceremony kind of out of this book. Uh, it doesn't really go into the intricacies of ceremony. Um, because, well, there's a long answer to that. But, uh, and it was that. It was that I wanted to bring her with me. I, I don't want to forget who this girl was. Because she had a lot of life, man. She had a lot of spirit. And she had a lot of confidence, like crazy confidence, right? The crazy confidence that it takes to dance on a table or smoke a joint while you're driving and roll a joint while you're driving or, you know, pop your head into some car what the fuck, and, and ask them if they can stop there. That, that's a true story. Like, in other words, these were true stories that I kept remembering uh, for a long time. And so absolutely, you know, um, but also like, you know, 40 is young, you know, like 40, 40 is actually young. Like, like a lot of women who are in their 40s right now are enjoying really, really like juicy careers. I mean, look at Miriam Gurba. I think she's early 40s. I've talked to her about this, right? Like the Cuarentona Club. <laughs> and it just means that it just means that you've had more time to refine your work, you know? And so I always say, like, it may have taken me 13 years to put Guat Liquid Girl out, but it's not gonna take me 13 years to put out the next book. Mm. You know? So it's like, I don't know, it needed to come out. And at some point, I thought that it wasn't meant to come out. And if you talk to like other writers, like um, I talked to Irene Lara Silva, excuse me, whose work I love. And uh, she is also from Texas. And um, she, she has a book that she never put out. And someone, at one point I was meowing about what Liquid Girl not being meant to be, not being meant to be. And someone said, hey, you should talk to Irene because she actually wrote a whole book and then let it go. And I was like, damn, okay. And I talked to her about it because I really felt like this book wasn't gonna happen. There was just so many, um, just from the, from the press to the art wasn't right, to just things weren't right, you know? Things just weren't right. And in ceremony especially, we're taught that, you know, it, everything is based on the signs that we receive. Like the signs weren't there. It wasn't like, making itself you know the right the right people weren't coming it just wasn't right and I guess maybe like I've spent so much time 
um, trying to heal myself from all the times that I ignored my instincts and went into something knowing it wasn't right. You know, so I started feeling like this book and making this book was a lot like being in a relationship, right? And so I had to accept or I had to want what was best. I had to want what was healthy. I had to want what was good for me, you know, not just what was quick or somebody that treated me like shit, but wanted to put the book out or someone that wanted to rush shit, rush the book, rush me. So I took a really long ass time, even my my publisher, Flower Song, Edward Vidaure, he told me that I took the longest, I've taken the longest out of any other author that he's had, that in the time that they waited for me, they put out eight books. And I'm difficult. Like, Irene told me that when she put her book out, her first book, she used a magnifying glass and that she went through it with a magnifying glass. And that's what I did. I literally would look at it every every letter with a magnifying glass, every letter, because that's how high the stakes are for us, because we don't get that many chances, because I knew that if it was like just the way that I am, I think it's because there was like some sort of weird jealousy that I had with other writers, but when I would be like, oh yes, someone put out a book, and I'd look through it, I'd see a misspelling, and I'd I'd be like, eh, you know? There was like this aspect where I was hypercritical of other work. And that was definitely because I always imagined that when I would put my stuff out, it was going to be well done. And that's always because people assume that because I'm from El Paso and I, I'm living under the poverty line as a single mom, as a writer, that my shit isn't going to be that good. You know? And so... I'm like, I'll be damned if there's going to be a, a misspelled word. Like, I went through it with a magnifying glass, I don't know, 10, 12 times. Now I'm going to look at the beginning of every sentence. Now I'm going to look at the end of every sentence. Now I'm going to look at uh, all the quotation marks, the beginning quotation. Now I'm going to look at the second quotation. I mean, like, break it down. Um, like that because the stakes are high the stakes are high for us we don't get that many chances i'm just telling you you know yeah yeah thank you so much Grace, for saying that and i loved how you said i'm difficult like because this is our oh the stakes are high it's like imposed externally but also for ourselves and how um, I think it's just so inspiring to hear just how long it took you because it just, I think it does give hope. It gives me hope. You know, I'm 34 and I do hope to publish books, you know, many books of yes. creating and poetry, but also how you said the response from the, from the younger mujeres of, you know, this is a model. This is, they can see themselves, but also um, inspire them for, you know, whatever their own purposes, right? And I think it's um, also, I had, um, a question something about you know being a Tejana poet specifically and you know obviously most people know you know Anzaldúa but I think what you said is just like the stakes as much work as she did you know she still passed away from you know health reasons you know complications of diabetes and you know still and she was broke and poor yes yeah absolutely you yeah. know and so we're here 2020 right <laughs> and it's just 
we're still encountering the same structural uh, barrier that you're talking about. But not only that, but it's just other themes in your book of um, growing up, you know, uh, gender, um, mental health. Uh, yeah, postpartum depression, um, yeah. just general sadness, poverty. You know, mothering is such a big concept in this book because it's such a large concept of who I am right and you know and so especially you know raising a daughter so there's some scenes like there's one called weekend where I'm just totally broke and she's a baby and I'm trying to just find money anywhere in an old purse and an old and and I even mentioned um when you open your closet and there's a the basket of like random clothes, old sock purses, things. And it was like, I wanted to let you know that like, that's what's in my closet. Like, that's me. It was like me being intimate, right? Saying this is me. Even that, I, I want to tell you all the, all the parts about me, even the little gross little basket that's inside, stuffed inside the closet of things that I don't know how to throw away and old things you know, and so it's just like, there's just an intimacy there that really like, you know, I wanted to, because being a mother and having mental illness and going through depression and having all these pressures and being a scholar and trying to get through school and being an artist and being sensitive and being difficult and being definitely infinitely more intelligent and complex than anyone ever thinks that you are, right? That's that makes me think of um, how you open the book with a quote from Irene. So that's one of my questions of um, she. She's this quote is about the fire has come, and I think of it. Think of your book, like this is the fire that has come, and hearing you talk and having heard you perform, you know, I could feel it. I could feel this fire in you, and um, and you know, um, how has a fire been medicine for you? You know, and what's interesting is that somebody read the book and they were, they compared the Irene's epigraph to that line. There's a line in Beer Run when she's 26 and she says, I like to light the fire, uh, whatever fire. And so it kind of like the book kind of explains uh, my relationship. Uh, or I don't know if I really go into to my full relationship with fire, but there's nothing internal that's driving you, right? There's that internal fire, you know, and in ceremony, we're taught about all the different fires, right? Like fire of the sun, the core of the earth, the fire that we use in our stove, the ceremonial fire, you know, there's like seven fires or something I'm trying to. And, uh, and so I like always have this, interest in fire uh, and in alchemy and uh definitely you know the girl in the book ending of the book because these were real stories and i was younger uh she's reckless she's getting herself into dangerous situations right she's she's in a bad place and she's doing things that she shouldn't be doing she's playing with fire but i hate that term but she's definitely looking for death I think for me uh, at that time, I had this feeling that I was meant for something, that I was meant, that I had this destiny ahead of me, but I was terrified and I had no idea how I was going to get there. 
And so in a way, maybe dying would be easier than having to like push this destiny, right? And so there's like a lot of like, um, like death, kind of like introspection with death, the way she sees it uh, in the book. I don't know, I'm trying to think where else there's fire. Probably in my next book, I'm going to talk more about actual fire. But, you know, there's definitely that ceremony that is in me, you know, that's always taking care of me my altar at home. Oh, I talk about altar is me. What am I saying? Uh, yeah. So th there's like aspects of like, I am the fire. Um, I am the altar, you know, um, the fire is inside of us, uh, type of work. And that kind of comes like later on in the book, but absolutely, you know, and I wanted to like tie it into the question about you know, you mentioned the intergenerational trauma ceremony and mental health um, mm -hmm. and how it's influenced your work as a queer Chicana mother poet. Um, and I really gravitate towards what you're sharing about the ceremony. Um, I finished my four years, but of Sundance. And I know it's kind of like the, the, the sister or, or the brother of the, the moon ceremony, which I have also been, I've heard about it and talked to some other folks about it um who helped run it um and i was like i you know what maybe it's time to pray for for that ceremony as well right because i i found it to be a lot more gentler um for the women energy in that way many years and so i really love hearing you share you know about ceremony and what it did for you and i'm just yeah, yeah actually I, I was one of the first chicanas that went down there uh for that ceremony um, when I got there, Abuela Tupina uh, was already there. Uh, she's an Abuela out of Austin. And then the women from California, um, well, no, uh, they're, they're all, like the women that you're talking about, they're probably my sisters. You know, these are all, these are all my sisters, you know, and we've spent ceremony time together and we've, you know, healed together. And Moondance is definitely, you know, and I always say about Moondance, the first time you hear about it, it's already working on you. I mean it. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's already working on you. And so th there's just this like, you know, complete, you know, um, and it is, it is very much like the opposite of the energy of Sundance. And it's based around women, you know, and it's just one of the most powerful uh, ceremonial aspects of my life. Um, and, you know, Sundance too. Sundance too has always been uh, very strong for me. I actually prayed for my daughter at Sundance and then got pregnant, like immediately. That happened and to so, me too. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Okay. 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 We, we need to talk later. But yeah, so Sundance is like definitely, you know, it takes, the sun takes care of me, but Moondance is what went inside and moon dance and and so when i finished my four years of moon dance that's when you can come and work in your community right that's basically what gives you i don't want to say permission but it just means that you are able to you're ready to become a part of the community and ready to work within the community and so when i finished my four years of moon dance like uh that was you know eight years ago um i started working like which is my other side which is not it's not a secret side 
but it's my other side here at home is I work as a curandera and I see people. I, I prefer to see women and children. I actually don't see any men unless it's part of a family group. Um, but so that's like the other side of, uh, and that's why, I mean, you can imagine, you know, I'm already like, you know, I've been working with women and, and I have that side of me. And at the same time, you know, I'm still putting out beer run and highways and I, you know, people might read this and be like, oh my God, this girl's totally lost. What's going on? I thought she was, you know, but, but it's, excuse me, it's really shows the timeline, you know, and it really shows that I've healed. I've healed enough to be able to, to put these other aspects of myself out there. But, you know, uh, Moondance was, you know, and still is with me, you know, so you're going to be, a, you're going to, We'll talk later about about that. So get ready. Yeah. It's a hard commitment. Yeah, I, I bet it's like in any like any ceremony and commitment, right? It's like it's a way of life, right? Versus, um, it's something you just do. Absolutely. Yeah. No. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's what I was so fascinated when I saw Chicana Mother work, and I saw the work you all were doing. Um, and this was before Guatlica Girl was out. And I, I don't know, I, I can't remember what it was and who I saw first or what I saw, but I saw you all in ceremony. And I really, really um, felt like these are my women. Like these are, these are my mujeres. These are the kind of mujeres I want to talk to, right? I felt an instant connection with your organization or just with you all um, before I even, you know, met you just from what I saw on, on social media. And so it's just really cool that like we're actually, uh, related through through ceremony that's so cute we're like what do they call them nibblings or siblings yes. <laughs> right yeah there's that the the like sibling kin um i feel from spirit right like you know how you connect with people you're like this is my person right and the same goes for those who you're like ah oh, this is not a good you know energia to be messing with so thank you for sharing yeah. and saying that I'm meeting, I'm meeting a lot of, a lot of us through this book. I'm getting so many cool messages <laughs> from mujeres that are just like us. Um, and that's also just like an incredible uh, plus uh, of this book coming out is that it's kind of like I get to be in many places at once. I can hang out with like all these people at the same time. It's a Sagittarius dream come true, right? <laughs> yeah. Your book is also books by uh women of color people of color it's also community building and that's what i'm hearing and that's what i'm seeing um and then i think for me part of it was i know you did one of my writing workshops in greece and i was so intimidated and then you went and told irene and then irene came to like the next one and i'm just like but you're the you know you're the established poets like what are you <laughs> i'm just here doing these workshops because i love it but i think just little by little this is how we just make these connections and just find each other and are supportive of each other because you know this is how we heal you know i think that's what it that's what we do with our art this is how we heal each other um and and i, I could really see that um you know what's happening for um you gris uh and i'm just so excited for more to come and you, more of your books like you're uh you're saying you're writing your next one I'm writing my next one. It's also it's it's also uh, has a lot to do with mothering and mother 
it's basically what I would call like the like it's a novel but it's um mostly based on my life and it's basically what I was doing the whole time I was writing Kualigwe Girl that's tight so like now I'm on to like telling what was actually going on the scenes from school the scenes with you know Belen's dad you know everything and um and so now I'm telling the backstory, right? Mm-hmm. My story, the story of the story. Oh, I don't know if I want to get moon dance into it, but the story of ceremony, you know, and, um, and it's called Sancha. It's called Sancha, a medicine story. Nice. It is something else, dude. It is something <laughs> else. And it's a fun story. And that's another thing is that I really like, I really like it when the work is fun. I like it to be light. I like it to have like little crazy things in it. I I can't stand the heaviness sometimes. And and that's not to say that I don't dwell in my trauma or that I don't write about difficult things or pain. But I kind of like have always felt that uh Our job as, and Irene talks about this too. I've actually connected with Irene about this, that really like our art should be made to uplift. And I I really believe that. I really like see a lot of works that take the reader to a dark place. And then they just leave them there. And And honestly, like, I guess maybe because I'm a Chicana writer, and like women of color writers always feel a, a sense of responsibility towards their communities. I've always felt a, a sense of responsibility towards my community, you know, um, down to the, down to the, the core of it. Like my, my English, my Spanish, even though I grew up, like my mom speaks Spanish and right here on the border, like, dude, I'm like super bocha. Right. And so um, when I started writing, uh, I didn't have poems in Spanish. And I'll never forget that one time I went out somewhere and, uh, you know, I was reading poetry at an event and this little abuelita came up to me and she said, pues, no entendí lo que estabas diciendo, pero me gustó mucho. (laughs) And I was like, I'm trash. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I was like, you know what? Who am I writing for? Who am I writing for? If I'm not writing for her, if I don't have work that's available to the abuelitos, what what am I doing? Who who am I trying to be, right? And so I specifically like started like going in and like I mean like even a lot of my work I have to like really extra work hard on the Spanish stuff and like translate it and you know, it takes a lot of work, um, but it's important to me, right? That like I include, that I included like works in Spanish um, because my mom, you know, my mom just hears Spanish. She's just gonna understand the stuff in Spanish, you know? And so it's like, you know, there's just a, a sense of responsibility um, that's real 
you know, that is a, is a desire to connect with everyone. Yeah, I think um, language, your responsibility uh, to the community. Um, I think Alexis Pauling Gums, who's a queer Black feminist writer, her practice that she does in pretty much all of her workshops is she says um, she has a dedication practice. You know, who, who do you call in in terms of uh, your ancestors, whether they're related to you uh, by blood or not? You know, who's your kin? And that's another way of saying, yeah, like, who are you responsible to? And then, you know, and then your community, like, where you live or, you know, who are the people mm -hmm. around you? Um, and I think that's so, um, that's so critical because um, how you said earlier, it's just like, oh, we don't want to leave as artists. You, we don't want to leave uh, those who um, are in our work just to leave them in that trauma. And it reminds me of that uh, workshop that you sent of uh, Therese Marie Melhot, where she talks about, you know, in her practice for creative writing, she teaches, uh, you know, having a medicine bundle where you have five stories about yourself that are um, yes. inspiring or positive or, you know, it could be anything, and then and then that you take that medicine bundle with you when you write these stories of trauma. But the other thing is reminding me of what you're saying, Goose, um, in this conversation with Irene, is uh, what Cherise said in this workshop was, oh, we don't, um, and by the end of that story or book or, you know, whatever it is, you don't want to, you don't, you want the reader to know more about you than your trauma. Yes. And that was yes. so powerful. Yeah, you know, absolutely, you know, and Teresa is, excuse me, close to me, and me and her talk all the time about, about writing, and, and we, we, I don't know, we call it, or she calls it, or we call it, uh, blood on the table, you know, you're like, there's going to be, a, there's surgery, there's surgery in progress, and there's going to be entrails, and there's going to be blood on the table. And, that, and that's really where you should be willing to, to, to take your work, you know. So she goes, she goes in, she goes in and she safely brings us out. And I admire that about her. And I think that's something that I just like, I really, you know, um, what Liquid Girl was like the experiment. I really think like Sancha is gonna be uh, where I get to describe that a little bit more. And you know, white writers, Many white writers, most white writers, don't have that sense of community or that sense of responsibility towards their community, right? And so there is that um, aspect of being a, a writer of color, person of color, and, and that, that we do, that we have a sense of responsibility or even like just the need to stay in our communities and work within that community to make it a better place or, you know, so there are there are a lot of aspects um, that are kind of behind the scenes in Guat Liquid Girl that have to do with that sense of responsibility. And then a lot of writing or, you know, literature with like the big L, um, it's just bad. <laughs> it's yes. just bad writing. And it's, so we're here. That was another thing, you know, I wanted to create, just to expand on that a little bit, you know, I wanted to create, you know, literature. And, and this goes back to my original wound as a spoken word poet. Because people treat spoken word poets like crap. And it was really hard. And, um, and so I did that for a long time. And I remember that I was taking a class 
uh, I was taking a class and it was a night class. It was a, a literature class. And this professor, whom I actually thank in the book, her name is Melissa Flores, but I've never found her again. I've like looked and looked for her. Um, and I don't know where she went. I've asked the department. I've asked if anyone even knows her and I can't find her, but I thanked her in the book. And um, I uh, told her that, you know, I was ready to stop being La Rana. And we talked about being like having that moniker in my writing, you know. And then she said, she said, but you know, that's not what they want. That's not what they need. They don't need you wearing a costume. You know what they need? They need girl with glasses. And I remember just like crying because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to be girl with glasses. And maybe that's because I didn't think that Gris was exciting enough or worthy or there's, you know. And so it took me like a long time to actually even start writing under my own name. I went through another phase that I wrote under the name Viva Flores and I performed under Viva Flores. And I loved Viva Flores because Viva Flores was another archetype. It was another, it was another, like, like, I don't know how I could describe it. And, um, but that's also my aspect as a performance artist. And uh, so then it, 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 I had to like go through this whole process. And I, you know, I, under Viva Flores, I, I, get, I got invited to UCLA. I performed with Luis Rodriguez. You know, that I was already building like, what would have been like my name as a writer and then I had to give it all up again because I just realized that I wasn't being authentic in it. and then I started again like okay now I have to like publish under Gris Munoz and start like getting things published under Gris Munoz because I've been publishing under Viva Flores for years you know and so uh it's just you know authenticity and uh, a lot of times it has to do with like what's going on internally with us and how much we're ready to reveal, you know, as writers. Can I ask a follow-up question about that, Gris? Um, sure. In terms of, of your genre, um, can you tell us a little bit more on, on your choice to, to use mixed genres, like both prose and poetry in your works? Well, I didn't want to, because like I said, I was studying traditional literature and I really had it like cemented that um, something should be, you know, like just one thing and a formal work, especially, and my debut formal work should be one thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just had this hang up. I actually, when I would look at people that wrote collections, when I would see collections, uh, I'd always like secretly think, and remember I told you, I have a tendency to be hypercritical and that hyper, and I've tried to like look within that whole thing about being hypercritical because there's also like I said there's ego attached to it but I would look at people that wrote collections and think oh I guess they just didn't have enough stuff written I guess maybe they were just trying to like put everything together to make a book right and and that's like messed up but it's actually like kind of true because you know that's kind of what ended up happening but not in like not in like kind of like in an, in an offhand way, because what ended up happening was that I actually had three manuscripts, a manuscript of short stories, a manuscript of uh, English poetry, and I was even trying my hand at having a manuscript of Spanish poetry. 
which was actually not a bad idea. Um, and so I had the book in, in three parts. And um, I, was, I was trying to push each one. And um, I, met, I emailed, um, and I don't know if you know of uh, Michael Sedano, you know, and he's a, a, a Chicano critic. And he's like, I want to say he's the Chicano critic, even though I think Miriam Burba is like, you know, I, she's, she's the Chicano critic. Uh, but, you know, Michael Sedano is the Chicano critic as well. Um, and uh, so I messaged him and I told him, oh, you know, I don't know what to do. And then he says, well, why don't you put out a hybrid? I said, a hybrid? Uh, you know, people that put out hybrids are blah, blah, blah. And then he said, well, I don't know. It kind of sounds like that's what the, that's what it wants to be. And so I, you know, I, I sat down with it and I looked at how it was undeniable that everything kind of matched. I was writing about the same themes. Everything kind of like looked like it could go together, you know? And then, I, you know, it was just a lot of fear about what are people going to think? Is it going to be cohesive? I started thinking, well, what, why is it that I think that people who put out collections uh, didn't, you know, really? And then I started thinking, well, it's because sometimes the writing seems disjointed. Sometimes you have different themes that are in one text, right? And maybe that's why. And then I thought, well, okay, you know, and what's been interesting is that when I talked to, I've talked to uh, a podcast of EP, from EPCC, El Paso Community College, um, someone mentioned, oh, it's really cohesive. It's super cohesive for a, a hybrid collection. And that was really like the dream, right? That's what I want to hear. That's what I like needed to hear. I was terrified that somebody was going to say, none of these pieces go together, you know? And, I, and like I said, there's that inner critic that it was just like, it has to be traditional literature everyone's gonna laugh at you, you know? There was just like, everyone's gonna laugh at me. I waited until I was almost 40 to put it out. And then it's not even one thing. Ugh. <laughs> like that was my, that's what I was like thinking internally, right? But, but really like, there, what, oh, so then what's funny is that like, once you like put out the book, you meet other writers who are further ahead in their journeys and they have several books. And they'll say, oh, yeah, my first book. Oh, yeah, my first book, you know? And so you realize that really that first book uh, is, is just the first part in, in another trajectory that, you know, I can, I can say, okay, you know, now, now I can really put what liquid girl behind me as much as I can and focus on something new that maybe is totally cohesive that I plan on it being. Uh, and so, you know, it was just the work and, and the art from Los Dos, the artwork, the artwork for me was definitely like the sign that the, the work was meant to be. Because what ended up happening was that at some point I put together a, a manuscript and I asked Los Dos to illustrate the book. And Los Dos are an amazing husband and wife couple from Juarez. Um, and their work, essentially, in this time that they were putting everything out, and I was taking to put Guadalupe Girl out, they like blew up. So they're like world class artists. 
and they show in museums and they've done huge murals and like, you know, they're super successful. And um, they're incredible because they agreed to illustrate the book and they knew I was a single mom and they agreed to it for like nothing compared to like what their rates would be. And I would pay them in payments. And we're talking like through years because I was broke. Uh, and so I would like scrape together money at some point and give them a money, give them money. Um, so they basically did this for free. You know what I mean? They are amazing. And um, we agreed on four illustrations to go along with the book. And um, they took like three years to do it. And then one day they just popped up and they said like, we're done. And they gave me the illustrations and I looked at them and I was like, oh shit, it's a hybrid. <laughs> because the piece because the pieces that that they were attached to um and that's what I had originally done because I think when you collaborate with someone you have to make room for whatever they're going to come up with like you trust yeah. them and yeah. so I never said make me a make me a girl wearing a comandanta ramona shirt with a skull and a scarf and put a little I don't do that like, I gave them the work and I said, whatever you imagine, whatever comes out of you, if you mm -hmm. feel that the pieces inspire you, that's what it's going to be. I'm not like, I'm cool. You nice. know, because I really wanted it to be like a real collaboration. And so then these are the pieces that came back. And these were the pieces, the, the poems that they chose uh corresponded to different pieces and those were in mixed form that's what i mean wow. and so that's i was like cool. oh i was like oh okay this is another affirmation that it's meant to be a hybrid and yeah. the artwork really just like put it all together it's really cool it's beautiful artwork yeah i love it i love the cover it's just so unique and distinctive and it makes you just want to just look at it twice you know yeah. um, it's definitely the kind of book that if I hadn't written it and I saw it, I would be like, who is this? <laughs> who is this? What? How, who is this? And I'd be like mad about it. Right? Because I tell you, like, <laughs> because like, you know, like I said, you know, I'm hypercritical. And and that comes from like a lot of different things, but definitely, you know, like I'd be like, what if I hadn't written it, I'd be like all all hating. I'd be totally <laughs> hating. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing the um yeah, your how this project came to be as um a hybrid, but also how critical the visual aspect piece was because I wouldn't have known that without really your testimony your your or your oral history right now and i think um um it also makes me think of how you're challenging um you know what we're taught in these institutions where um you know i think what happens because i was an english major in college i think it's actually when people of color or bipoc people want to study literature i think it's racial violence to absolutely to be submitted to this kind of literature that you know it's just uh reinforcing whiteness 
white supremacy erasure you know it's violence and so um you know that you sat in these classes and you created such a beautiful gift for us this beautiful medicine um you know and i think from everything that you've shared it's just like one thing i keep coming back to Grace, is like you never gave up you never gave up as shitty you know the shittiest parts you know, but then what you did is, you know, you went back and you just showed love and compassion to those younger versions of yourself. And then that is, um, that's what uh, gives us that medicine. You know, it's not about just shoving this all away, how you were saying earlier, out of sight in the closet. Um, it's, it's getting in there and doing that work because some people never do that work. Yeah. And I can't even tell you how many times I tried to just let it all go. And maybe, you know, like at one point I like decided I was done with school. I was a senior and I just got a job. I was like, you know what? I'm just so tired of being fucking poor. I'm going to get a job. And, you know, went on that and the job ended up pushing me into a, a mental breakdown because I'm bipolar. And, you know, I was still mothering uh, throughout all of that, you know, um, the absolute violence of the educational system, uh, especially in the literature department, especially in a literature department um, and the work that we're learning is so white centered. Uh, Southwestern literature, especially here, like on the border and in this area, uh, is very much based on like settlers and like the viewpoints of settlers and how they see uh, the native peoples uh, as outsiders. And so there was just like the literature uh, was making me feel overwhelmed and panicked, you know, while at the same time. And so I was a terrible student. I was a terrible student. Uh, I basically did as best as I could. You know, most of the time I was just like, you know, and either I was doing really well or I was, you know, at the back of the class, just like trying not to have a panic attack or, you know, uh, because, I, you know, like I said, I'm bipolar and I can fall into a clinical depression. And that's really when things get dangerous for me. Uh, a lot of times, like what were my manic periods were actually periods where I could work. And so like I would push out like an entire short story during a manic period. Like my daughter would get picked up for the weekend and I would write a new story, you know, and then I spent years, years, you know, um, going back to it and working on it. Um, but so, I mean, absolutely. Um, there's just so many times that, you know, I myself just thought, and even relationships that we get into, that we, we, suddenly get tired of the loneliness, right? We get tired of how lonely it is to be a single mom. And um, we decide to share space with somebody and that person ends up taking us away from this energy. It ends up taking us away from our dream. It ends up taking, they end up taking us away from that. And then, you know, I almost feel like there were times where I was willing to give it all up, right? And I kept coming back to myself. 
And that was just the ceremony part, you know? It's not to say that I didn't let go of the balloon. I did. I just ended up alone again. I would end up alone and then there it would be in front of me. And I hadn't opened it in two years. Or sometimes I was just so sick, so sad, right? Like this internal sadness. It's just systematic violence on top of everything else. And on top of just not being seen by the world, not being seen correctly. And uh, so it was just like, I just have this like, you know, get up, get up. And, and a lot of times like, like where I talk about ego, you know, this, there is sometimes where that's self-love, which is not ego, but self-love is what pulls you out of those moments, right? And you have to like, those dark moments where you're alone, when we like hang up the podcast and you have to just like fight all these thoughts, you know? Like there's something that's behind that, that's like, keep going, keep going you know, and also it was because I had talked so much shit. I was always criticizing everybody's work. <laughs> I'm a critic. I'm a critic. At some point, I, I had a weird mentorship with Ana Castillo. And, uh, but at some point, she said, you know what? You're a critic. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm not a critic. I'm a writer. <laughs> right? But the truth is, is that I am a critic. And, uh, I, you know, I'm very hard on work. I'm very hard on works. And I want, I want the genre to move forward. Mm. I want the genre to be moved forward. And, like, you know, I had a, an interview with, with Dr. Cantu. And uh, we were in, she came to El Paso and she brought uh, a graduate student working on a project. And they interviewed me and uh, I said, you know what? We need to get off on Zaldua's tit. <laughs> and you know what? They did not add that. They did not add that part into the project. But you oh, know, shit. you know, the thing is, is that I really believe that. I really believe that we're here to move the genre forward. And I talk about mm. theory. I talk about theory and I say, What's the point of working on something for 13 years if it's been written 20 years ago? Why the hell would I spend 13 years working on something that's already been written and better? What the hell? No. I want to write something that, that is new. I'm going to move this thing forward. I'm going to push the wheel forward. You know, that's too comfortable. Like, you know, that's too comfortable. Is just to like sit mm -hmm. here and regurgitate the theory and what's already been put out there. That's, I mean, and that's fine because there's people that do it and I respect them and they live way better than me. So keep in mind that, you know, I'm just some crazy person sitting here, but I'd rather write what's brave and I'd rather push the genre forward and write the, uh, bisexual dystopian story mm. you know oh I loved it at like, the end that was one of my favorites 
I was just like, oh, oh. It's weird. Yeah, and it's deep. And there's like a whole, and you know what's crazy about that story? And this has to do with women and, and you know, other women writers. Therese, like I said, she's been my friend for a long time. And Therese was a single mom for a long time. And so we were two like crazy ass single moms together, uh, just talking and writing. And this was before she was like, cause now she's big time. She's like world famous, but we were just friends and she was a student. And um, I wrote, I wrote Semper Vivum, the first draft of it on a plane coming back from LA and randomly Alicia Gaspar de Alba was sitting in the seat behind me. What the? Wow. And I, and I was like, I was like, are you, you know, hi. And then I was like, Hey, I'm writing right now. I'm writing a, a, a queer, uh, sci-fi. And she was like, Oh, awesome. Right. Like, she's like, who's this weirdo? So then I was like writing, that was the first draft. And then I show it to Therese and Therese goes, you know what? And she's dude, she's just going to tell you. And she goes, you know what? this story would be a lot better if you told it through the eyes of this character. And I was like, no, you didn't. Oh, okay. And then it stayed in me. It's like clawing in me and I trust her. And I'm like, oh, she's right. And I did it. I went back and I wrote the whole damn thing from the viewpoint of the other character. And then it came out. And it's just been like this crazy journey. But uh, I'm just like always trying to push my mind, you know, push it forward, push, push something forward, push theory forward, push ceremony forward, you know. I think it's just how you said, like taking a risk. And um, yeah, the uh, significance and importance of that. and. Um, now I feel even more intimidated that I sent you one of my essays. You know, I'm like, I loved oh. it. <laughs> I loved it. Which I still haven't published or I don't know where to publish it, but, um, but yeah, thank you. So, but I think it's, uh, yeah. So what, I think that's just as a writer or artist, that's the critical question because how you're, how, I think that's also very true of, um, Sometimes uh, artists or writers produce things, and I would say scholars too, uh, produce, you know, books or, you know, art or whatever it is, because it's, it feels more comfortable to produce certain kinds of things that's more acceptable or, you know, or it doesn't expose all of those other things that you talk about in your book, right? Um, and it seems like it's easier in a way. Yeah but and it's more lucrative it's way more lucrative yeah and then it, but it's missing that um i don't know if authenticity is the right word um but it's maybe it's that recklessness maybe it's that little aspect of recklessness you know that lives in us that we have to be defiant like when i think about it if i really really was to sit there and think about it i've always um, I haven't, I haven't fit well into the system. I was always really, really smart, especially in, you know, literature and like growing up in grade school and stuff. I was always singled, uh, you know, apart for being the one chosen for the project or the one to 
get the lead in the class play or like there was definitely uh, a sense of you know but at the same time uh, there was always something defiant about me that the system could never fully have right and um, I never felt like my professors like under really knew what was going on right behind my eyes you know I've never like there were times where I just like I would think to myself okay so that I don't lose financial aid this semester I have to I can fail one class and honestly sometimes I had to make that choice I just don't have it I just don't have the energy I'm gonna fail this class but I still get to start again next semester and so like in my transcripts you could probably go back and see how many times you know how many times I failed you know or just like had to let let something go you know just for just for survival purposes you know but there's that defiant quality that I think all of us have and when I think about it and we talk about putting out a hybrid work I think dude you've always been a rebel why would you have why would the thing that you put out be like something that fits something that like sits in line hello you know and so it was like oh I still have to carry that burden even into publishing you know and maybe it doesn't mean anything but the the truth is is that it doesn't really fit into any genre and so it's like everybody is like oh has this book won any awards yet and it's like it's probably not because the awards are not for mixed books like this the awards go to people who you know write in form and I, and i knew that and i think that's what was holding me back oh i'm not going to win any awards for this like if i've ever won an award like if i've won awards like if I win awards, so it's a risk. But but the truth is is that is that we're already living. We're already living is a risk, right? And the and the truth is is that the less that you have responsibilities to, the more time that you have. I've realized now, as an artist and having a trajectory as a woman artist for sixteen years that in a lot of ways living on less also affords me more time and ultimately that's what i find valuable right if i went out and got a new car and bought a house then i'd have to give hours of my day to paying that off right and then i would lose time with myself which is invaluable that that really reminds me of uh, Octavia Butler, the black woman science fiction writer, where she gave interviews where she said that she took on menial kinds of jobs on purpose because, you know, she I think she worked in like warehouses or she packed things in boxes and she said because it reserved her mental energy. That's right. She would go home and write. So she was she was another writer that um, only until the end of her very end of her life who did not see the actual financial material award. Uh, awards i mean she was getting awards but it wasn't until eventually she did but um 
even at the it was only at the very end of her life where she was finally winning also for health reasons Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know so um at 62 which is still young right uh around the same age as Anzaldúa but um yeah absolutely yeah there's so much there's so much more I want to say but I think um to kind of uh uh get things uh to wrap them up uh we wanted to ask you if you're still willing to read a poem yeah of course and then after that we can tell um our listeners how to get in touch with you how they can hire you (laughs) how they can order your libro i'm around you know i'm here and i love to to talk about these these subjects you know um because it's really like what you all represent and what you know, the, the intent of your project is to represent women like us. And we're definitely, you know, or, or people who identify as women uh, like us, uh, you know, and that's creating community in spaces, right? And that's like an incredibly brave thing to do. Uh, so I, you know, I just like, you know, just want to say that is that, you know, I remember saying like, well, who's going to read the book? Who's going to read it? Who's going to connect with it? And people would tell me, don't worry about that. Just put it out and it'll find its community. It'll find its readers. And that's something that people say. And it's very true. You know what I mean? And so it's so cool that like, um, I get to be here, you know, because the book brought me here closer to you all. And you all were already creating that space. And so you kind of like, you see how like we're making these, these connections together. There's a, a poem that I really love called Claudia and um you know because at this whole time you know we didn't get to really go into this but you know I'm a queer woman and I didn't actually get to really start experimenting with loving other women until I became a single mom so like up until I had my daughter I was totally like trying to like not be gay you know I was really trying not to be gay, so I went all the way into the to the hetero the hetero fantasy, right? And what was expected of us and everything. And it was really almost like if once I gave my parents a granddaughter, they like were okay with me being myself, I guess. Like there was like this weird sense of, you know. So then um this book also chronicles that is my journey kind of like loving women. But at some point, um, someone told me that, excuse me, the, the book, um, it, it expresses the way that single mothers love and that's in small moments. It's in tiny moments when you have an afternoon off or you get the night off, like you experience love and you experience connection with people in like, moment right and I thought that was very meaningful that that, um, someone a reader would pick pick up on that and so here's one of those moments with Claudia we never knew when it was morning legs entwined I would watch her standing at the stove to make espresso from an antique tin a sculptor One night, she hung glass bottles from the ceiling with twine. They would clink with the wind. I would watch her standing at the stove to make espresso from an antique tin. It had been her grandmother's, she said. 
The bottles would clink with the wind in the basement apartment with no furniture except for that four-poster bed. It had been her grandmother's, she had said. A sculptor. One night she hung glass bottles from the ceiling with twine. In the basement apartment with no furniture except for that four-poster bed. We never knew when it was morning, legs entwined. I love that one. And Claudia is real, and she's a sculptor. She's a professor somewhere. I won't say where. And she's, <laughs> she's still amazing. She's still beautiful. Oh. I love it. That's so, yeah, that's so beautiful. And yeah, thank you. I wish we did have more time to talk about uh, single mothering, because I'm also a single mom, and, um, but also about being a, a queer single Chicana mom and the beauty you, you represented in this, um, in this piece, in this poem you're reading. Thank you for this gift. I'm here for you guys. I'm like so here. And like the reason that, that I went to your workshop and I you know, invited Irene was because I just wanted to remind you that you know, you're, you're, one, you're one of us. You're like part of our crew. You're on our team. You guys are on our team, right? Yeah. And so it's like, I've talked to Irene about the last generation of Chicana writers, and there's definitely a disconnect there, right? And, and I, I guess it was at that time, maybe there was even more scarcity than there is now. And I think, you know, there's trauma. But if anything, like we want to create a new type of community within women writers and Chicana writers because there's been so much trauma that has to do with the first generation of Chicana writers. They need medicine. A lot of them do. And there's issues with being good mentors, you know. And so Irene and I have really talked extensively about how important it is to one, not operate from a place of scarcity. That there's enough jobs and enough books and there's enough room for everybody at the table, right? And then there's also like breaking that trauma and like being there for other writers and encouraging other writers as much as we can. And, and fighting through our feelings of inferiority and, and, and everything else, you know? But I'm, I'm here. Yeah, thank you, Gris. Um, I think for me, it's been really important to um, continue hearing, you know, the stories of queer mothering um, for the longest as well. Like I, um, I've had a hard time, like really trying to push back against, like just because I'm a mama and currently in a heterosexual relationship with the man I love, doesn't mean it erases my sexual identity as the queer mother. Um, and that's been really hard, you know, and so it's really exciting to continue hearing um, and talking to uh, more queer mamas because, you know, the more the more we talk about it, the more we feel visible, right, instead of being pushed back into this closet, right, um, and so I really appreciate that aspect of it, and again, like, in the future, I love to continue having these conversations because we need to, right? And and it and it was at it was at Knox a few years ago, um, where the I think the plenary speakers uh, were Chicana Tejana queer mamas, 
oh my goodness i felt like i was bawling number one and thankfully i was on the table with chicana mother work and other another friends but i feel like this is really important and also the pain that comes from being you know um a lesbian queer mama right and just how our identities are stripped of like being like caretakers and mothers or parents right and so i i absolutely or we're sexualized or 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 we're sexualized for being bisexual or for being queer well at the same time you know yeah exactly and and i really appreciate you know talking to you and, and something you said earlier i know we're, we're wrapping up is you said something about the moon ceremony being an internal offering and i really see your book as that like this is the work you've given us it's no coincidence it took 13 years a ceremonial process of birth and rebirth and death and it's an offering you're like you gave us right that cannot be rushed and so i see yeah. it as such an ofrenda and i'm like yes like I'm really happy to hear that the affirmations are like your community will come and you've definitely called us out right like the prayer was sent out and here Absolutely. we are receiving it so thank you for your work and you know you don't know how much medicine that is to me so I want to thank you for that and I just want to thank you all for the work that you do you know and I hope to like you write many books you know so I hope that we have lifelong friendships Absolutely. When this pinche coronavirus shit ends, I'd be so yes. tight to come visit El Paso. We like to travel together and meet together and laugh uh, together and cry together. You um, love El Paso. And, and we fight too, so. Oh, we yes. fight. No, yes. <laughs> we do fight. <laughs> It'd be so tight to come see you in person or if there's a way to pull, like bring you to Califas or oh, Yeah, you come somehow. to LA for the the big tit. Oh, you know, I always the go big to the big tit. The big tit always calls, honey. The big tit always calls. So I have to be there soon anyway because I'm going to put this book out with Fabian and he's like huge. And that's going to be a whole thing. Hopefully, you know, Corona's over. We, we'll have like a big party. I'll invite you guys. It'll be amazing. It'll be like a who's who of LA. That's just because that's Fabian's community, not mine. But I get to I get to be there, you know. I'm gonna get to troll, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, and we're both in LA. Uh, I know Christine just came back, uh, came back to LA, and you know I'm here in Boyle Heights. Um, and I took your book. I, I I think did I post? I think I did online where I took your book to Hollenbeck. Uh huh. And I was reading it. It was just such a beautiful day with the sunshine and the grass and. Um, I think that's where I also read the first time where you thank Therese and I was like, what? Because, you know, I, her wow. berries is just, oh my God, I can't describe. She is something else. Yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah. She is, and you know what? She is such a down friend. Like, she is the real deal, Therese. Yeah, but thank yeah, you. No, and just thank you all so much. And, and when you took it to the park that day, that's also one of the settings in Fabian's book. Remember when I asked LA if I would have permission to write its stories, you know, there's always affirmations that come to me uh, that, you know, make me think, okay, you know, I'm, you know, because I, you know, I'm telling the story of some, somewhere else, you know, and so always respective of land. But thank you so much, you know, and I believe in you. I believe in your work. 
Cecilia. So I'm very excited about your future. I'm super excited about it. That means a lot because I think I'm still, maybe this is my own process of still coming back to those younger versions of myself or even the self I am right now, you know, and then yeah. you sharing your story so openly, it gives me that strength and that hope. Like, I think you wrote in here, your dedication, I just, uh, you wrote, here's an offering, a little chispa from my spirit. That's what it feels like, you know? Oh, yeah. Like coming out for, you know, my books and then more, you know, more women of color and, you know, having this, that sense of more of like the healed community because I, um, and how you talked about like the first generation where maybe that didn't necessarily happen. And that's also in academia you know, where are the first generation of academics, I think it's, it's similar uh, because they Absolutely. were the first ones to go through it. And sometimes uh, they enforce certain kinds of, uh, you know, yeah. tough love or, yeah, they, or scarcity. They think, that, they think that everybody has to suffer the way that they did, you know, but that's not true because, you know, they've already taken those steps and, you know, there's a, there's, there's, there's definitely an internal journey that the elders need to take, you know, in regards to how they, they treat people who are mentees and, you know, people who admire their work, you know. And so, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you there. I did want to uh, get to how, how can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they put some respect on your check <laughs> and pay you? <laughs> Right. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, definitely. You know, you know, try to buy the book. You can buy the book for me, but the thing is, is buying the book for me. Excuse me. Takes a little bit longer. Um, it takes a little longer. It's a little more expensive too, just because you have to pay for the shipping. Um, but you can find that information on my website, uh, com. And I kind of like, I like Instagram a lot. Um, and so my Instagram handle is at Gris Munoz Gris. That's also my Twitter handle, but I kind of like don't feel very confident in Twitter. Twitter is a weird place and poetry Twitter is a whole other place that, you know, I don't know about Chicanas belonging in. Uh, so, you know, but I'm definitely here and, you know, I hope to be accessible. Awesome. Thank you. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Chicana Motherwork on Instagram and Facebook and at Chicana Mothers on Twitter. And please rate our podcast so people like you can find us. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We want to thank Dr. Marta Gonzalez for giving us permission to use the music of Entre Mujeres Sirena for our intro and Vagabundo from Quetzal for our outro. To purchase our book, you can order it through the University of Arizona Press. And you could find the link on our website at chicanamotherwork.com. If you want to book us for events, email us at chicanamotherwork at gmail.com or for any other question or to engage with us. We look forward to hearing from you.